to episode number five of the Charting the Territories podcast. My name is Al Getz. I am one of the hosts, and along with me, as always, the inimitable Mr. John Boucher. How's it going, John? Not bad, Al. How are you? Listeners, how are you? It's October. I love October. October is one of my favorite months. How do you feel about October, Al? I like October. I used to live in Asheville, North Carolina, and, and it became a big tourist attraction that time of uh, this time of the year because the leaves would change colors. And mm. Asheville is in the perfect uh, place geographically for a, a significant color change over huh. the course of just a few weeks in the fall. And it might have been September or October. Um, but, you know, we have a lot of uh, looky-loos coming in just to look at the leaves on the trees. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... Because I think different trees have different timetables of when they change. And huh. the climate in Nashville is is suitable for many of these different types of trees. So it's not just they all change at the same time. It's that some trees will already have changed color, some will have not. So there's many, many colors to be seen. Oh, you get the fall spectrum. Yes, you get the full spectrum of autumn. Oh. Nice. Uh, but uh, enough about leaves. We're actually going to talk about... Uh, in this episode, we're going to talk about something that's near and dear to both of our hearts besides pro wrestling, and that's music. Uh, the mm-hmm. name of this episode is It Begins with Jim Croce, and It Ends with the American Males, mm-hmm. which is an interesting uh, six degrees of, of Kevin Bacon, if there ever was one. Uh, but this month on the podcast, we're going to focus mostly on the fourth quarter of 1980, which saw Leroy Brown come to Mid-South in an attempt to become the baddest man in the whole damn town and prove that he was meaner than a junkyard dog. We'll also talk about the rest of the roster at the time. We'll dissect the feud between North American champion The Grappler and challenger Jake Roberts, who has his first major program in Mid-South at this time, plus a unique angle that led to the return of a main event star after a brief absence. We'll also briefly touch on the second quarter of 1962, where we have uh, an example of something that we talked about last month, John, and that's the concept of titles being held up, um, but it only uh, applying in the town it was held up in. Uh, We're also going to talk about uh, a wrestler who made a very rare appearance, uh, his only appearance in the McGurk territory, and one of just a handful of appearances outside of his home base, which was the Goulas territory. He recently passed away last, uh, just on October 9th at the age of 91. Mm -hmm. Uh, That, of course, is Len Rossi. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about his post-wrestling career. And, John, if you can offer the listeners a little tease of what's to come. Yeah, there's... He's, I mean, he had a fantastic wrestling career, and I'm sure I'll, I'll touch on that a little as well. But it's also I I, I love the idea of uh, guys like Rossi who are able to have a sort of second career renaissance uh, in an altogether different field that they end up loving, and in in some respects find finding almost more rewarding than their previous career in wrestling. And it's something that he's very passionate about, and it's a very very interesting part of his life. And I, I can't wait to talk about it. It's very, it's very interesting. So that's one of the things that's coming later. And of course, also coming later, we will dip into the mailbag. And then from there, at the very end of this episode, John, I'm going to make my worldwide singing debut. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this uh, originates a, a few weeks back. I noticed I was approaching a thousand followers on Twitter and of course, Twitter at Al gets wrestling. And so I put the word out that if we could get over a thousand followers within, you know, I think 48 hours of when I tweeted it out, I would sing the American males theme song on this podcast in celebration of that. And sure enough, within a couple of hours, I think we shattered that goal. So later on, 
Yeah, I will sing the American uh, American Males theme song. And what's neat is when I was figuring this out, I was like, well, should I sing it a cappella, which no one wants to hear? Should I just sing it over the actual song, which will dilute it because I would be competing with the actual singer? Or should I try and find an instrumental version of the original song, which is probably out there, but I don't know where it is. But I came up with something else. Uh, another thing aside from wrestling and music that is near and dear to both our hearts, John, is baseball. And there's an interesting uh, slight wrestling connection uh, in baseball here in Atlanta. The organist for the Atlanta Braves, Matthew Kaminsky, is a longtime wrestling fan. And uh, what he does, he plays little intro music for the visiting team uh, walk-up as they come to the plate. And there's uh, several neat little wrestling tie-ins. When Adam Eaton comes to the plate, he usually plays the theme from the Midnight Express. Uh, when Manny Machado comes to the plate, he alternates between uh, Macho Man by the Village People and uh, Pomp and Circumstance, which is Randy Savage's theme music. When JT Real Mucho comes up, he usually plays Real American. So there's always some cute little calls uh, to wrestling fans. And so I decided to reach out to him, told him that I uh, roped myself into singing the American Males theme song in a podcast and asked him if he would be willing to contribute the music. And he did. So uh, we're not, it's not a live duet. He has already recorded this and emailed the music to me, and I will be singing over it. Uh, and if you like what you hear musically, www.matthewkaminsky.com. You can buy CDs, or you can also uh, take virtual online lessons in the piano, the organ, or mm -hmm. even the accordion. Mm -hmm. So that, and th this theme song, it's literally going to be at the very end of the podcast as we, after we wrap everything up, it will be the last thing. It will take us out. It will be our musical outro. So mm -hmm. we have that to look forward to. Uh, and before we dig into 1980, before we get into the meat of the podcast, I also want to mention that as we talked about last month, the latest special project looking at George and Gil Culkin's standalone Mississippi territory is available now on PayHip. It's a PDF file clocking in at over 80 pages with hundreds of cards from the territory, plus our exclusive spot ratings, feud scores, and a booking calendar of all known house shows in the territory. Uh, while the territory is probably best known, John, for launching the careers of Michael Hayes, Terry Gordy, Percy Pringle, and Kamala, there are a lot of other interesting names that worked in the territory during its almost two-year existence. Yeah, you're making you're Al, you're making us look really bad here. Uh, the rest of us with this another month, another 85 pages we put <laughs> out of fascinating, incredibly well researched material. And the the, the Culkin Mississippi uh, ICW such a, such a cool sort of obscure and maybe you know maybe because it only existed for about two years, sort of forgotten, almost lost territory. But if if you have the, a slight interest in wrestling history and if you're listening to Charting the Territories, you probably do. Uh, interested behind the scenes, uh, stuff involved in promoting and booking, I can guarantee you this stuff will be very interesting. And if you're someone who's just getting into studying or researching wrestling history or the old territories, this territory is like, it's almost like a really good, I found it to be a really good like gateway drug because of its relatively short existence and that it takes primarily in Mississippi, Louisiana and other stuff, but in a fairly uh, limited cast, if you will, it's it's easy to digest and not as overwhelming as studying like some of the larger territories. And this, but this your almanac here is such a fantastic introduction to this to this uh, to this territory. It's, it's great work as always. I was I just uh, finished reading uh, a book about the the territory. We could talk about that too. And this is a great uh, you know little accompaniment to that book. 
Yeah, Gil Culkin's book, The uh, Mississippi Territory, is available on Amazon. It's a it's an interesting read. It, it's a lot about his life growing up as the son of a former wrestler turned wrestling promoter and his sort of indoctrination into the wrestling business as, as he at a young age, starting as a ring announcer and slowly but surely uh, involved in every aspect of behind-the-scenes promotion of wrestling. One of the most fascinating stories in uh, the Culkin's book, which I also mentioned in the Almanac, is uh, the TV production process. I think a lot of our listeners understand that um, before there were satellites and, and syndication and this and that, uh, the television tape was what we call bicycled throughout the territory and that it aired in different weeks in different towns. And they literally took the same copy of the tape re-recorded new local house show promos over it and then took the tape to the next town uh, that it was going to air in. It's an interesting process, but the Culkins actually did it a little bit differently. They taped, for the most part, they taped their TV at their Friday night house show in Greenwood, Mississippi. And then from the uh, when the house show was over, the production crew and all the wrestlers went straight to the TV studio in Greenwood late Friday night. And they, would all, they were making dubs of the master tape and also shooting live local promos for each of these dubs. And, and each tape would go on a bus overnight to a different town. So this way, the TV aired in every market the same weekend, the same Saturday or Sunday. I, I love the idea of the, you know, someone putting the, the, the reels of tape and like the, the bus and the little seatbelt over the <laughs> over the reels and tucking it in for the... <laughs> well, I, I've been told that the buses actually did mail services. I don't necessarily think it was official through the post office, but this was before the days of like FedEx and, and, yeah. and you know, these things. So this was an alternate means of, of sending things. So I, yeah, they did put it in a seat and put a seat belt on it. I think they had a separate <laughs> luggage compartment for like mail. I was trying to find out how this all worked. Uh, the post office at one point actually had buses uh, decked out in, in, you know, official post office colors and, and logos and whatnot that would oh. drive from town to town. And they actually were sorting mail on the bus as it was going from town to town. So oh. I guess they would be one driver and then at least one employee in the back of the bus, literally sorting the mail so that when they got to each town, they would just take one bin that was for that town and send it there. And then everything else would go on to the next towns. Oh, that's really interesting. Wow. Yeah, so um but the Culkin Almanac is available at payhip.com slash charting the territories. And as with everything that we put on Payhip, it is a downloadable and you can download it for free or name your own price. Um so now we go to our canned intro. Charting the territories is a data-driven look at pro wrestling in the territorial era, with a primary focus on the Leroy McGurk Bill Watts territory from the late 50s to the mid-80s. In addition to attempting to get records of every house show promoted in the territory. We use the data that we have to create statistics that quantify wrestlers' achievements in a way that stats used in other sports can't capture and that take into account the unique nature of pro wrestling. We have two main statistics that we will refer to often. The first is a spot rating. Spot stands for statistical position over time, and it measures a wrestler's average position or spot on the cards. If a wrestler is always in main events or near the top of the card, they're going to have a higher spot rating than someone who generally wrestles in the middle of the card or in the opening matches. Spot is a number between 0 and 1, expressed as a two-digit decimal, and a spot rating of 1.00 means the wrestler was in the main event of every show they were advertised on in a given time period. 
The other statistic is a feud score, with feud standing for frequent encounters using data and is used to measure the intensity of a feud based on how many times a match happens and how those matches are distributed over a short period of time. Um, as a general rule of thumb, uh, it's expressed as a whole integer and a feud score of 25 or higher means it's a feud 40 or higher means it's a major feud. Um, as, and as part of the whole attempting to get records of every house show, um, in addition to collecting data for this territory, I do also do research on some other territories as well. Uh, this used to involve a lot of traveling, but with COVID-19, most of these archives were closed for much of the year. And even as some are starting to reopen, I've been hesitant to resume uh, traveling. Um, but a lot of them are opening things up online and digitizing things. And I, I recently stumbled across something uh, that... I'm going to ask our listeners, any of our listeners who are residents of the great state of Kansas, and more accurately, have a valid Kansas driver's license, please reach out to me as you might be able to help me with something. It's simple. Uh, it won't take much time at all. And you can message me on Twitter at Al Getz Wrestling. That's L-G-E-T-Z Wrestling. So yeah, uh, might, might be some homework for, for people, John. Mm. I like that. I mean, you know, what's better than a podcast, but a podcast that makes you do work afterwards, <laughs> that assigns you homework. Um, so the fourth quarter of 1980, John, la last month we focused on 1972, where we talked about some of the hit movies of, of the day. Uh, yeah. And I want to do something similar. And, and given how we're, we're going to make some jokes about Jim Croce, I decided to look at the music charts uh, for the fourth quarter of 1980. And I found something pretty interesting for us wrestling fans, particularly for us Mid-South wrestling fans. The number one song on the pop charts for the first three weeks of October of 1980 was a song that would later become very well associated with the Junkyard Dog, and that is Another One Bites the Dust by Queen. And this was their disco song. I think around this time, a lot of rock artists and pop artists uh, made a disco song uh, because that was very popular. You know, Rod Stewart with his Do You Think I'm Sexy, yeah. Kiss had I oh, Was Made For Loving You, and Queen had Another One Bites the Dust. And it was crazy, like this, when you think about it, like this was the fourth single from this LP, the game is the name of the LP. It was from the fourth. So there were three singles off this LP uh, before Another One Bites the Dust, which is, you know, one of their most well-known songs now. Uh, the first single being a crazy little thing called Love. Uh, and it was like nine or ten months between the release of Crazy Little Thing Called Love as a single and Another One Bites the Dust, which and it didn't happen until, uh, I guess, the story of Michael Jackson was a big fan of Queen. And he'd always be backstage whenever they played L.A. and he was in town. And after seeing them and hearing that song live, he was talking to Freddie Mercury and he's like, Freddie, that's got to be a single. Please don't make fun of my Michael Jackson voice. I, it just happened. I wasn't planning on doing that. Uh, you know, so he convinces Freddie Mercury and the, and the band that, to do this as a single. And it's, uh, you know, I think it was written by their bass player, actually, John Deacon, who I don't know. He's one of those guys who doesn't do any of the reunion stuff, which I've always found fascinating. Uh, and the, interesting, too, like Crazy Little Thing Called Love and Another One Bites the Dust are their only number one hits in the U.S., which I was surprised to to read they have more in the uk but another one bites the dust is not one of their number one hits in the uk it's yeah they, they really one. weren't a chart band yeah. um but but now of course the, the you know we uh, and well so, so bohemian rhapsody didn't didn't get to number one in the 90s when it was re-released no at the number two i think okay. i think it's been in the top 10 i think two or three times 
Yeah, I think it had an original run, and then after Wayne's World, they re-released it. Yep, and it got, I think it had the highest charting at that point, and then I think it charted again with the release of the the movie a couple years ago, but never hit number one in the U.S. That song later became very well associated with the Junkyard Dog. Um, And in the fall of 1980, he is uh, the top babyface in the territory. He he has vanquished the Freebirds. They finished up at the end of September. Uh, But a new challenge for Junkyard Dog arose in the form of a returning Ernie Ladd and shortly thereafter Leroy Brown. Now, Ladd, earlier in the year, really put JYD over big. Uh, Ladd had been the Louisiana heavyweight champion, and he lost it, at, he lost it to JYD at a house show in Shreveport in 30 seconds. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, you know, he didn't just do the job. He really, you know, yeah. uh, put JYD over huge. But now he's back for revenge, and he's got some backup. Uh, Ladd and Brown end up winning the Mid-South Tag Team titles from Junkyard Dog and Terry Orndorff at the end of October. And shortly they, thereafter, they injure Terry Orndorff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the, the whole concept of Leroy Brown feuding with Junkyard Dog is lifted directly from the 1973 Jim Croce song, <laughs> Bad, Bad yeah. Leroy Brown. Uh, another interesting connection to uh, this geographical territory, uh, Croce uh, passed away in a plane crash in 1973 as, as his plane was taking off. And what's interesting is the plane crash was in Louisiana. His plane crashed during takeoff from Natchitoches. And for those of our listeners that are not from Louisiana, Natchitoches is spelled nothing like it sounds. (laughs) This is all part of my learning to pronounce these towns right. It is spelled N-A-T-C-H-I-T-O-C-H-E-S. So you oh. would think it would be pronounced Natchitoches, but it is not. It is pronounced Natchitoches. Wow. It's um, even less syllables than it looks. Yeah. Um, that This is just one of those things. But uh, so in keeping in the uh, Jim Croce as uh, Booker, uh, I want to play a little game with you, John. I didn't tell you what we oh. were doing, but I told you to familiarize yourself with some of Croce's bigger hits. Okay. Um, so what we're going to do is I'm going to name a pro wrestling angle or storyline or thing. And John, I want to see if you can name the Jim Croce song that might have uh, influenced it. Okay. So we will start with a Mid-South angle, one of the more famous Mid-South angles, and that is Bill Watts slapping Mr. Cornette and then being attacked by the Midnights. Uh, you don't mess around with Jim. That's right. Yes. <laughs> ding, 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 I, I ding, ding. I, I you you don't mess around with Jim. Good one. All right. You are one for one. Next. Bubba Ray Dudley's early ECW promos. Do you remember? Do you remember the the thing about his promos? This wasn't when they was baiting the fans. The the early stuff. What was the thing that he always did? Uh oh, I have stumped him. I think. I think. I think. Could it? Could it be? I got a name. Yes. Because he, he can't. Oh. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Because he kept trying to get, he would do, my name is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so, okay, yes, I got a name. Oh. All right, two for two. There's no time limit on this. So, yeah, you're two Thank for two. God. Next, Larry Zabisco and Baby Doll's weird feud with Dusty Rhodes in the late 80s. What was the impetus or the, the main uh, prop for the feud? Remember, Baby Doll confronted Dusty Rhodes. And he had the they had the the, the, the the envelope. And what was what was insinuated what? was inside the envelope. Photographs. A photograph. 
And pro and those photographs probably brought up. No, I'm Photographs and memories. Wow, I could I did I did not remember that song. I forgot. I totally forgot about that Jim Croce song. Yeah, photographs, memories. All right, one more, oh, and then and then we will uh, finish this game. And this one is not Jim Croce, <laughs> but uh, another '70s oh. pop singer songwriter who died young that everyone always mixes up with Jim Croce. Um, <laughs> so I'm not going to name him, but Eric Watts's push in WCW. And the cats and the cradle and the <laughs> I'm going to be <laughs> like you, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot about photographs memories. That that was uh that's that's what threw me. I was like that's operator. It can't be operator. Yeah, I was no, I was I was gonna do like a something about Paulie Dangerously's original you know uh, character uh, for operator because he was always on the phone, uh, but it didn't quite work. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, so you got three out of four right. That's pretty okay. good. You're batting okay. seven fifty. If you were yeah, if you, baseball, yeah, <laughs> you would be a hall of famer if, in baseball if you batted seven fifty. Yes, yeah, terrible at everything else. Yes. All right. Back to wrestling. Uh, yeah. There was actually a fair amount of turnover at the top of the cards during the fourth quarter of 1980. Our spot ratings chart, which can be found on the blog at www.chartingtheterritories.com, shows several main eventers leaving the territory in the first few weeks of the quarter. On the heel side, all, all three Freebirds leave, as does Ken Mantell. Uh, on the babyface side, former North American champ Ted DiBiase finishes up, while Paul Orndorff leaves early in October to go to New Japan. I don't know for sure if they did an injury angle or just wrote him off, but I know in the case of DiBiase, he uh, lost the North American title to the grappler and, and just finished up and moved on. There wasn't a big injury angle or anything like that. Um, but the rest of the main event wrestlers on the on the roster were Junkyard Dog and Bill Watts, and on the heel side, the Grappler and Ernie Ladd. Looking at the upper mid-carders, uh, all of whom have a spot rating of between 0 .60 and 0 .80, on average for the quarter. On the babyface side, we have Terry Orndorff, we have Jake Roberts, we have Mr. Wrestling 2, and Killer Carl Cox. So that's an interesting combination of young up-and-comers and established veterans. Uh, Killer Carl Cox is returning after a pretty big run in the mid-70s here, where I think he was here for most of three years, uh, teaming with Dick Murdoch, then feuding with Dick Murdoch, then... Uh, so they were heels, and then Murdoch turns face. Uh, Murdoch leaves. Cox ends up turning babyface. And about a year or so later, Murdoch returns and then turns heel. So they do Cox-Murdoch again, this time with right. the roles reversed. Mm. Uh, I mean, they got a lot of mileage out of Cox yeah. and Murdoch. And I think they worked together in many territories over the years. They just uh, were very familiar with one another. We also have Mr. Wrestling 2 making uh, a... a few weeks' worth of appearances here on loan from Georgia, as is Ole Anderson on the heel side. And the other uh, upper mid-carters besides Ole are Leroy Brown, Paul Ellering, and Johnny Mantell. Uh, we mentioned the passing of Len Rossi uh, at the beginning of the podcast. Also recently, we lost Road Warrior Animal. And uh, since we have Paul Ellering in the territory at this time, John, I wanted to toss to you to tell us a little bit about Ellering's, uh, I guess you're going to talk about his wrestling career prior to becoming the manager of the Legion of Doom. Yeah, he's a young Ellering man. Like if you haven't seen him, photos or video, he's so so jacked, like so built so well. I think he he held uh, like a, a legitimate world weightlifting record, like a 745 pound deadlift in his weight class, while still in in school at South Dakota State. 
And uh, after setting this, this this record, he gets invited to like a regional sports banquet or something. And that's, that's where he meets Vern Gagne for the first time. And, and Vern approached him at this banquet about getting into to wrestling, like right then and there. Gives him his card to call me good. Um, but Ellering's goals at this point in his life are just basically weightlifting, fitness, and eventually getting into the family business, which I think was uh, in the agricultural field. Um, after he graduates, uh, Ellering hears about a, a gym that's for sale in Omaha, I think. And that, that's really piques his interest. Uh, so he calls his dad and they drive down and look at it. And the, the price in the gym is like 60 grand or something. And at this point, El, Ellering's just out of school and he's got like ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 in student loans. Uh, and he gets thinking about money and remembers, you know, on the way back and he's remembering this conversation at the banquet. And he thinks, thinks to himself, mm, maybe I should call Vern and see about the money in this wrestling thing. You know, so he ends up eventually getting trained by, by Vern and Eddie Sharkey. And he was one of those, those, those uh, early 70s classes. And I think it's uh, him and Steve Oslanowski, Steve O, were the only two trainees in the class that started with 30, 35 people. All the rest of the guys got sick of puking all over themselves and getting beat up and bruised. And, yeah, and that, and that class is also a step down from uh, the, the more famous class of probably a couple of years earlier. Yeah. With Flair and uh, Sheik and uh, Steam, a couple others. Steam, was Steamboat in that one too? Or? I think so. Um, but eventually he debuts a couple of years later on Christmas night, 1977. Uh, and he gets you know, sent off to Georgia, Florida for about six months, which has got to be great for a, a kid from Minnesota spending the, the winter in Florida. Um, back in the AWA by fall of 78, he ends up in like a, like a two-year feud with Jesse Ventura. And it's it's really funny watching these interviews and promos between Ellering and Ventura because Ellering is so much better on the mic uh, than Ventura at this stage in their respective careers. Ventura is still doing like a sort of like superstar Billy Graham style like a rap promo and he's got a little Austin Idol hat, but he doesn't really have his own own style yet. You know, but he called Ellering Ellerat during a lot of his interviews, which is hilarious to me for some reason. Uh, and the interviews and the inevitable weightlifting and arm wrestling contests are all, all great, and they all go just as you expect them to go, devolving into total total chaos. So Ellering's um, the face in these? Yes. Okay. Um, and as far as the in-ring stuff goes, it may have just been a case of uh, you know, putting two guys against each other that were maybe a little too similar in terms of style, look, you know, and in-ring capabilities. Um, but eventually Vern pairs Ellering up with his old training camp buddy, Steve-O. And Steve-O, although he's not as much of a, a dynamo on the microphone as, as Ellering, he could, he could pick up the slack on the, on the in-ring stuff there. And they were the top babyface team in the territory for, for a while with the high flyers on hiatus. I think they, were, they did an injury angle with Brunzel, uh, but that was to get him out because he had a, a really good singles run in Crockett uh, at the time, Georgia also. Uh, but yeah, they were the top babyface team for, for a bit, and Ellering uh, was able to continue the feud Ventura, who was teamed up with Adonis, Adrian Adonis, and Adonis was sort of filling in the Steve-O role in the East-West connection. And uh, another injury, a, le a legit one this time, uh, when Jerry Lawler breaks his leg playing football with his buddies in 1979. They bring Ellering to Memphis as a heel, uh, first time as a heel, and pair him up uh, with Jimmy Hart. They have him do the whole, you know, I'm the new king gimmick, and he's got the robe and the crown, the whole nine yards. A perfect way to get yourself some heat in Memphis. Uh, 
And I, I really think the more I think about it, like Memphis was really a, a perfect territory for Ellering, the wrestler. You know, he's not a tall guy. Um, he was muscular, big, super jacked, but not tall. And as far as like the in-ring work, Ellering was much more of like a, a muscle guy brawler than a, a, a nat technician. Um, so he seems very well suited for, for Memphis, especially paired uh, with Jimmy Hart. And he gets a, a nice like main event push there. He's like AW Southern champ for a few months. He uses Valiant and Dundee. I think he has a quick run of tag belts too. Uh, and by summer of 1980, he's, he's here in the Mid-South and he's got lots of, uh, lots of tag matches against JYD. Terry Orndor first uh, with Grappler as a partner, later with Ladd as a partner, works Killer Carl Cox a bunch, uh, spends a lot of time handcuffed to ring posts. Uh, and there's a very big card in November that he's on. We'll talk about that later. Uh, and he's here until early spring, 81, does a tour of Japan, uh, heads to Georgia, and he's only in Georgia for a couple of weeks. And he's in the middle of a, of a singles match, Robert Gibson in Columbus, Georgia. And the way, the way Ellering describes it, he whips Robert into the ropes. Robert comes off. Ellering goes for like a scoop slam. Uh, he, and he pivots, but his knee doesn't turn. And <laughs> he just blows Oof. out his knee. He blows out his knee and just rolls out of the ring and that's it. Uh, he's out for like six months or so. After which he goes uh, back to, to Watson Mid-South. Having good, a good solid run there. The stuff with the Sheik and the clubs and the whole thing. Until, according to Ellering, he's wrestling Orndorff. Uh, and Orndorff's lying on the mat. Ellering goes to come off the second rope with a knee, and as Ellering pushes off the rope, injures the same knee again. Then he shows up in, in, in Portland for a couple of weeks in October, and at some point, Ole calls him up and is like, hey, kid, you ready to come back? Uh, so he goes to Atlanta, but he's physically he's still only at like 80% of where he needs to be to be uh, a full-time wrestler. And, and Ole says, look, you're not just where we need you to be uh, with the knee. But I can tell you have a good understanding of the business. It's great on the mic. Have you ever thought about management? And Oli also goes, he gives him the whole spiel. Uh, he, he warns him that once people see you as a manager, once you go down that road, there's no coming back to being a wrestler. Uh, that's it. You're just, you're basically a manager then. Um, and then Paul tells him how he thinks being a manager is his destiny. How when he was training with Eddie Sharkey and Vern, he used to have premonitions about being a manager. So that was basically the, the simple transition for him. Uh, to become the manager. And essentially that ends his full-time career as a wrestler. He would do some, some stuff here and there with the Warriors, but his full-time career was basically over. And it's like, you hear so many horror stories about guys career ending prematurely of injuries. Uh, it's great to hear, you know, stories like, like Ellering's where great examples of, you know, what, what could have been a terrible negative situation and the setting, the parlaying that into, if not a new career, a new chapter in that career, that would be the most successful of his life. And I absolutely loved the original, like Elysian of Doom with Buzz Sawyer, Bud Sawyer, the spoiler, Bundy, Jake Roberts, and of course the Road Warriors. And listening to Ellering talk about those like first six months of the Warriors on Georgia TV, he sounds like a proud, a proud dad. You know, he can he compares with like the Beatles landing in America in February 1964, Ellering driving them to Techwood Drive in the back of his black van in the summer of 83. And they, you know, they, they all had the charisma, the look, and that intangible that you couldn't recreate. And they were at the right place, you know, WTBS at the right time when the business was was changing, cable was exploding, you know, and he, of course, becomes their legitimate business manager. Uh, and regardless of whether you know, as the part of a working manager, whether he seems essential or unnecessary in that, in that sense, 
he was very valuable to him in terms of being what he describes as the last shoot manager and everything from like sitting down in the airport, figuring out the schedule, offering guidance on how to deal with guys being difficult in the ring, uh, keeping their matches short, interviews short, um, you know, having the wherewithal to deal with promoters, telling them like this isn't the team you build your territory around. Just come up with the angle, bring us in, we'll do the match, bring us back in three, four months. Yeah, they you know, he, they were you know almost one of the last special attractions, yeah, um, and and they were perfect for that role, and that sort of becomes the problem, uh, you know, a few years later in in, in Crockett when they're there for a while, and and you know what yeah. do you what do you do with these guys? But they were tailor made uh, to be like Andre or Bruiser Brody or someone like yeah. that, um, and 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 then so to have a you know real life manager, um, you know, so he's doing the duties of a business manager and he's also doing the duties of uh, a wrestling agent or what we today call producers and yeah. helping them lay out matches and, and, and get everything all together. And, and yeah, you mentioned um, there are so many other ways to make a living in professional wrestling besides wrestling. But a lot of times the mindset of someone that wants to become a wrestler is, is too narrow to see that I, I think of in the current era, uh, Corey Graves, um, absolutely respect the fact that he, uh, was, uh, you know, because of a couple of concussions was, was not going to be able to continue as a wrestler and found a way to continue on in professional wrestling. And I have a, the utmost respect for anyone, uh, that does that. Yeah. And he's a, he's a perfect fit for, for the warriors. And just in terms of like, especially like you said, like dealing, dealing with promoters, laying out matches. I, I, you know, I know it was Oli that put them together and came up with the initial idea, but really having Elderling on board helps take that to the next level and kept them there for the next, you know, probably six, six or seven years until, like you said, like the, the end of the Crockett era there. Yeah. So, so Oli is the one that uh, put them together. And we mentioned Oli briefly. He's here along with Mr. Wrestling too. They're sort of on loan from Georgia. Oli comes in as a bounty hunter, um, trying to collect a bounty on Watts. I'm, I believe it was placed by Ladd. Um, wrestling 2, uh, and this is Johnny Walker, works here for a few weeks, but then he's scheduled to wrestle Ladd on TV in November. Uh, but before the match starts, the masked man attacks Ladd and goes to town on him, and he pulls the mask off, and it's not Johnny Walker this time. It's Paul Orndorff. Oh. Um, he had, of course, as we mentioned, uh, been away. He was in Japan. Um, and he's out for revenge on Ladd for injuring his brother, Terry. Uh, and, and this info about this TV angle uh, comes from Brian Brian Ackman, who runs the Mid-South Wrestling Universe Appreciation Group on Facebook. This angle with uh, Orndorff returning to attack Ladd builds up to the main event of the November 27th Superdome oh. show, which was the first time they've been in the Superdome since that huge show in August August 2nd with JYD uh, coming back to face Hayes. But this one, the main event is a lights-out match between Ladd and Orndorff. And John, um, why don't you run run down the whole card for the Superdome and we'll talk about uh, how it did afterwards. Oh, cool. uh, opening match, we've got Coco Samoa uh, beat Mike Miller, 10 minutes. Uh, Jim Garvin uh, beat Terry Lathan, sub for Ron Cheatham, 6 minutes. I have tag match next, Wahoo McDaniel and Ray Candy, who is subbing for Stephen Littlebear, uh, beat the Mexican Angel and Turk at 7 minutes and 7 seconds. Uh, Louisiana champ Jake Roberts beats Paul Ellering, 13 minutes. Uh, Ted DiBiase beats Super Destroyer, who's subbing for Mark Lewin. I think Lewin was actually in Japan at this time. 15 minutes. In Japan, the Superdome's a tough double shot. Uh, Dusty Rhodes beat Nikolai Volkov. I want to talk about this one, too. Uh, 10 minutes, 46 seconds. 
uh, JYD, Bill Watts, beat Ernie Ladd and Leroy Brown at 15 minutes. Uh, North American champ, the grappler, beat Killer Carl Cox in a no-DQ match at 11 minutes. Uh, and Paul Orndorff in our main event, beats Ernie Ladd in the lights-out match. No, I don't have a time on this. It's a lights-out match, so the timekeeper's probably... Well, the, yeah, the lights now. were out. They couldn't tell the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's funny. I was looking at like the, the match lengths for this, and like, I'm doing the math, and I'm like, oh, this seems pretty short. It's only about 90 minutes, not including a lights-out match, but, but two hours is the average for these Superdome cards. We're just so conditioned to like the ridiculous three-hour weekly raw yeah. that's yeah i think the standard was you know two hours two hours yeah. 15 minutes um the perfect but, length for a show yeah one of the matches you mentioned dusty Rhodes beat nikolai volkov now in virtually every source i've seen that has results uh for mid-south wrestling uh dusty Rhodes is listed as beating ivan koloff and i want to say beyond a shadow of a doubt that is 100 incorrect um, I have the original program, which advertises it as Dusty vs. Volkov. There's an ad in the article in the paper. And then in the following uh, Superdome program, they have pictures from this event. And it absolutely is Nikolai Volkov and not Ivan Koloff. Um, this happens. And as, as many great sites and sources that are out there that have thousands and thousands of listings of shows and results and wrestlers... Sometimes mistakes happen, and the problem is they get copied and pasted to all the other sites, and they become accepted as fact. So I, I do want to say, uh, if you th if you disagree with Dusty Rhodes uh, beating Nikolai Volkov on the show, you are incorrect um, beyond a shadow of a doubt. So there. You know, it's funny we were talking about that uh, particular match. Uh, uh, you know, last week or earlier this week, and I was, I was like, oh, that's so weird. And, and you made the point, like, no, it's not. And and it's, and and explain what you just explained to me, and it's it's, it's really all it takes is, is you know one that result to be in in one one source, and a lot of these results are just copied from. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't it, tell you how many times I've uh, typed a date wrong uh, instead of 1968, yeah. I put 1986, and I I have when I enter all my stuff into my spreadsheets, I have actually a system of checks that looks for those types of things and typos yeah. and things like that, um, but a lot of people don't, and and. Uh, you know, I, it very well might have been an unintentional mistake. Someone just was wanting to type Volkov and for whatever reason, their brain picked the wrong Russian. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it happens and it's a small percentage, but when there are hundreds of thousands of shows and literally millions of records, you know, a half a percent is, you know, tens of thousands of, of right. these types of errors. And so one of the goals of the Charting the Territories project is to have one place where this stuff is vetted and sourced and checked as often as possible to try and be accurate. And all that being said, I'm still going to make a mistake every now and then. And I, I own up to my mistakes. If you say, hey, this is wrong, and I go back and find out that, yes, it indeed was wrong, I say thank you by all means. Um, but uh, the attendance for this show uh, was 18,000, which was a big drop from August when they drew 28,000. Mm -hmm. um, this was the eighth show at the Superdome dating back to July 76. And the average for the first seven was 19,400. So comparing it to the overall average, it's not too bad. And if you actually take out that big August show, the other six Superdome cards had averaged just under 18,000. So 18,000 is a perfectly reasonable number. Also realize there's no world champion. There are no uh, women or midgets. The only 
outside help is Dusty and Volkov and and Wahoo. Uh, and that's it. And the Orndorff Lad angle uh, aired on TV, you know, I think right, you know, right as they come up to this. So, mm. yeah, this is a 18,000 is a reasonable uh, not just reasonable, but a good, acceptable number. Um, you listed uh, a few wrestlers that we haven't talked about yet that are in the territory this quarter, and that is Ray Candy, the Super Destroyer, and Jim Garvin. Uh, they are being pushed, but they're all uh, just coming into the territory, so they're moving up the cards. Um, based on their spot rating, uh, they are in the mid-carder category for this quarter, but as we go into 1981, all three of them will move up. And this is Super Destroyer uh, Scott Irwin's first time in the territory, Jim Garvin's first time as a wrestler, he had been here uh, in the early 70s as the younger brother and manager of Terry Garvin. And he was, I think, 19, 20 years old at the time. So this is his first time here as a as a full-time wrestler. And Ray Candy had been here a couple of times before, um, but this was his return to the area. Uh, we also mentioned Killer Carl Cox. Uh, in the semi-main event, losing to the grappler in a no-DQ match. Uh, that was pretty much the blow-off for their feud, but it leads into Grappler's next program, which with which is with Cox's protege, Jake Roberts. And it's interesting to note that Cox had just done a protege angle in Florida with Jim Garvin, who's also here. Uh, yeah. Garvin was his protege, but Cox ended up turning heel on him. Uh, that doesn't happen here, but uh, on the blog at chartingtheterritories.com, we dissect the grappler versus Jake Roberts feud by looking at all of their known house show matches, and we list them town by town and not just chronologically. And the reason I do this is because this way you can sort of see the progression of the feud in each town because it usually follows a pattern and the pattern is generally the same in each town, each of the regular towns. And so in this case where we don't have results for a lot of the towns, we can look at the towns we have results for and see how the flow of the matches goes and and then you know project and say that's probably how it happened in the other towns as well basically what happens as the feud begins grappler is the north american champion and jake is the louisiana champion so the first match is either for jake's belt or it's a non-title match and jake wins that which sets up a North American title match uh, for the rematch, which Jake wins by DQ. And this sets up a third match uh, again for the North American title with no disqualification stipulations, which Grappler wins. So, I mean, this uh, is definitely not rocket science. It's a very simple and basic pr uh, progression and escalation of, of stipulations Um based on the previous results. He wins a non-title match, thus he gets a title match. He wins uh, when Grappler gets DQ, so they make it a no DQ, and the champion retains. Um, there's one significant change uh, that occurs during the quarter. Remember, Bill Bill Watts uh, took out took over Mid-South or split from McGurk or whatever you want to call it uh, a year earlier in September of 1979. And they had been taping their TV show at the studios in Shreveport, Louisiana. But right around this time, they moved to the Irish McNeil Boys Club yeah. in Shreveport. The first listings I can find for shows taped at the Boys Club were November 8th, and that would have been the initial air date. I believe they're taping the shows on alternating Thursdays at first, although at some point in 1981, they switch it to Wednesdays, which becomes the tradition for a few years. Uh, but the house show loop in late 1980 generally looks like this. Uh, New Orleans area on Mondays, Baton Rouge on Tuesdays, Jackson on Wednesdays, 
Shreveport on Fridays. And then most of the other towns are running every two weeks with double shots most or, or all Sundays. Uh, Thursdays, it's every other week is in Shreveport. And then the other of the every other week is in a town like Greenwood or Greenville, Mississippi. Uh, and they're running a lot of Louisiana towns uh, on the weekends. Uh, the Monday shows sort of uh, flip back and forth or either at Chalmette or at the Municipal Auditorium in New Orleans. And it probably depends on... Um, if they've got any outside talent coming in, if they've got another spot show lined up for that night, um, and, and so maybe they've got a smaller cruise, so they'll run the smaller venue in Chalmette. If they if they don't have another show that night and they have everyone and maybe Dusty's available or Wahoo or someone, they'll run the larger building. Uh, but we'll see as Junkyard Dog uh, is drawing more fans uh, in that town, they start running Municipal Auditorium more often than Chalmette. Huh. We actually see this towards the end of 1980. They, uh, after the Superdome show, the rest of the year, the shows are all at the auditorium and not in Chalmette. I don't know for a fact <laughs> that this is attributable to JYD as a draw, but it's very possible. So yeah, so that's 1980. Uh, this is now, you know, Watts has now been running Mid-South for over a year. And uh, a lot of the pieces that were in place that uh, were a big part of the first year of the territory, the Freebirds, uh, Ken Mantell and his feud with Paul Orndorff, they're gone. And, and uh, as the territories go, this rotation of talent is what keeps things fresh. And uh, Leroy Brown being attached to Ernie Ladd automatically gives him credibility. Uh, they're new faces, but they've been there before. They've got backstories. And again, with the uh, uh, association of the Jim Croce song, it's a natural for Leroy Brown to feud with Junkyard Dog. What's interesting, uh, Leroy Brown, his, um, I was looking at some of his earliest known matches, which were for Goulas in 76, 77 for Leroy Brown. Uh, his second known match uh, that I could find records of, which was in Blytheville, Arkansas, and it was a tag team match. And on the opposite side was Sylvester Ritter uh, before oh, wow. he was using the name Junkyard Dog. So even back then, the two were destined to cross paths <laughs> based on lyrics from a deceased singer-songwriter's uh, hit song, Bad, Bad Leroy Brown. Yeah, that's <laughs> so funny. Yeah. On, on the blog, in addition to looking at the fourth quarter of 1980, we're also looking at the second quarter of 1962. Um the the more recent years from the 70s and 80s, I we're now doing that uh, alternating every three months. So we're looking at the fourth quarter of 1980 this month. In November, we'll look at the fourth quarter of 1976. And in December, the fourth quarter of 1972. Then in January, we're going to go uh, into 1981, followed by 77, followed by 73. So that that's all on an alternating quarterly basis. But when we go back in the 60s, every month we do a new three-month chunk of time. So we're looking at the second quarter of 1962. There's a few new faces, uh, a few tag teams. There is Al and Ramon Torres. Al is more commonly known as Alberto, but here he seems to be just billed as Al. Uh, we have Jack and Jim Dalton, and Jack Dalton is, of course, uh, Don Fargo. And we have a version of the Dante and Mephisto tag team. There were numerous versions of this team over the years. This particular one was Red Donovan and Louis Papineau. Um, and speaking of tag teams, we also see what I believe is the first time ever of Big Boy Brown teaming with Tiny Smith. They didn't hmm. become a regular tag team at this point, but of course, shortly thereafter, they... Uh, become a regular tag team as the Kentuckians and do huge business uh, feuding with the Assassins, uh, Renesto and Hamilton, uh, in several 
different territories, but this is uh, the first time we, I believe, that they ever teamed up. We also see Hiro Matsuda, who we talked about last month, moving up the cards to main event status, and as I mentioned at the beginning, a rare appearance outside of the Ghoulist territory by Len Rossi, who comes here for a brief run in the mid-cards. Uh, very briefly, he was originally from New York, uh, was wrestling for a, a couple of years, and uh, went down to work for Ghoulist. He had a young son who was just starting school, and Len and his wife thought it would be best uh, for the child to not move around so much. So they decided to, uh, Len decided to basically homestead in the Ghoulist territory. And aside from this six-week run here for McGurk, uh, one or two runs for Florida briefly, and maybe one or two other briefs since elsewhere, he was in uh, the Ghoulist territory from uh, from 1959 to his uh, career-ending automobile accident in... The mid-70s. Uh, yes, 70, 70, 72. 72, early 70s. Pearl Harbor Day, 1972, I believe. Oh, wow. Interesting. So, yeah, John, uh, you were, you teased us earlier that we were going to talk about Len Rossi's post-wrestling career. We talked about Ellering and how when he couldn't perform in the ring anymore, he found a, a way to be involved in pro wrestling. Len Rossi went outside of wrestling but found a very, uh, what appears to be a very rewarding and successful post-wrestling career. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very. I didn't know we had this theme. We have a theme almost, aside from a non-Croce theme to to uh, today. Uh, yeah, it's it's it it really is, and it, Len Ross is really fascinating. Like if we had if we had another three hours, we could go into his his, his whole career because it's really really fascinating. There's so many uh, interesting guys that are involved. Uh, you know, with the Bearcat Brown stuff and uh, Tex Riley, who's like a fascinating, fascinating guy. Um, it, it, but it, 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 it's really just, it, it, you know, Italian guy from Utica, New York, who ends up being a hometown hero to fans in Tennessee and Alabama, like a huge, huge star, like one of, one of the biggest stars from the late 50s through the early seventies, like and I dare I say, number two in the territory behind Jackie Fargo, Southern Junior Heavyweight Champion, uh, six times Southern Tag Title, something like fifteen, sixteen times. Yeah, um, his, his team with Bearcat Brown, they were the first integrated tag team in the Ghoulist territory, yeah. uh, and and perhaps in the South altogether. I haven't gone through it in detail. I know in the McGurk territory, it didn't uh, didn't happen until 1971 when Tom yeah. Jones and Billy Redlines teamed up, but uh, this predated that by two years. Yeah, interesting. And this was all, you know, that 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 whole teaming with with Bearcat Brown was was Rossi's idea. Like he pitches he pitched that idea to to Goulis in I think 69, I think. And Goulis wasn't sure about it at first, but the Rossi eventually convinced him to pair them up. Uh, I think it's live TV from Birmingham of all places. Uh, you know, the noted hotbed of racial segregation at the time. I was going <laughs> to you know? say, of all Goulas' towns, that would have been the last <laughs> one I, I would have started the team <laughs> in. But so they, 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 their TV was like live on shot the TV live on Saturday, and the house show was on Monday. And lo and behold, they're turning them away at at, at, at turning them away at the door. Uh, in addition to turning away at the door, there are also, you know, bomb threats and opposition and protests from the KKK, uh, you know, and they have a huge view with the interns uh, and Dr. Ken Raymond. They do the insane angle where the interns and Ken Raymond paint Bearcat Brown white, which is an insane angle. And Bearcat Brown comes out screaming, I don't want to be white. I'm a black man and I'm proud to be black. It's like such an insane angle for the time. 
the whole thing is just insane. And Rossi and Brown became really close friends outside of the ring too. And it's like we were talking, you know, like you know, Sputnik Monroe gets a lot of credit as far as championing desegregation. But here we are, we're 10 years, 10 years later, 1969, and this was the first top level babyface integrated tag team to work this territory. Um, yeah, I mean, he sadly has his, his car accident in 72. His son becomes a wrestler in the 70s. He has a brief comeback teaming with his son, but it, it doesn't doesn't last very long. Um, after the in-ring career, he also he booked for Gullis a little bit. He booked Birmingham, I believe, Huntsville, Chattanooga, and Nashville. This is when Jarrett was, was booking uh, Memphis and Louisville. Um, and around this time, again, like he gets hospitalized again, passes out at home. Uh, he gets brought to the hospital, and he's diagnosed with diverticulitis. Um, and while he's in the hospital, he gets visited uh, by the on-staff radiologist. Uh, and he's got stomach problems, colon problems, diverticulitis. And the radiologist brings up the work of a Dr. Dennis Parsons Burkett. Uh, and this is a guy who had uh, been doing studies in Africa. Uh, back in the 50s, this guy was in Uganda and had identified and isolated a certain type of, of cancer, childhood cancer, that was predominant in this one village. And he found out that by mapping the, the geographical distribution of this disease throughout Uganda, that it was primarily occurring in malaria endemic regions, and that the malaria and Epstein-Barr syndrome were contributing factors to this particular type of cancer, which was later named uh, Burkitt lymphoma. Uh, but the most recent research he was doing, this was also in Africa, but it was centered upon low occurrences of diverticulitis, colitis, and certain types of heart disease in, in certain regions. And he attributed this in part to the diets of the people in these areas being exceptionally high in fiber. So the staff radiologist says, Look, we can we can do surgery, you know, but this is not a life-threatening illness you have here. Um, we can try to treat this, you know, with diet and medicine, uh, which was un unconventional treatment at that time. Um, so after after being laid up for something like months after the accident, uh, being able to avoid surgery sounds like a, a great idea to Len Rossi, uh, and this ends up being sort of a life-changing moment for for him here. You got to keep in mind again, this is like seventy-two, seventy-three. You know, the public at large is not aware of the, the benefits of fiber. Um, you know, you think of diets back then, you think of like diet pills and those belt massager things. Um, <laughs> and a lot, a lot of diets back then were, were often later to be discovered, like either just uh, ridiculously non-beneficial or dangerous. Um, like they had the, the grapefruit diet. Um, they had the, the, the Stillman diet was, a, was a, uh, big for a few years, championed by Karen Carpenter, of all people. Um the appropriately named the last chance diet, which was a, like a protein drink that was later discovered to be made from slaughterhouse leftovers, <laughs> shut down by the FDA after the deaths of, of some of the dieters and the oddly named, uh, Israeli army diet, which had nothing to do with, uh, the Israeli army. Uh, but you know, Rossi, you know, takes the advice of the radiologist, changes his diet, becomes a vegetarian, quits drinking altogether and is able to avoid having surgery. And he's fit as a fiddle. Um, and he's so amazed by what these lifestyle lifestyle changes did for his health uh, that he goes back to school in his mid-40s, uh, gets a degree in naturopathy, and opens up a health food store in Brentwood, uh, just outside of Nashville. 
keep in mind, this is 1973 again. Uh, I mean, even today, you, you get people rolling their eyes and they hear the words vegetarian or organic sometimes. So you can imagine how radical a concept this may have been in Nashville, Tennessee in the early 70s. Uh, and he continues this, introducing people, people to healthier living, diet exercise, uh, natural forms of healing, always in concert with his clients, medical doctors, of course, never against them. Um, and he did this for the rest of his life. Uh, he had a re really interesting take on health and disease, the way he would, uh, you know, treating health as a you know, sort of holistic process of overall self-improvement. Um, he had his own line of vitamins and supplements, you know, but he stressed that they these were just that. They were, they were supplements. They're not silver bullets. They weren't treating any specific disease. What he was trying to achieve was to get, you know, the body balanced where it would have all the nutrients it needed in order to thrive and attempt to to heal itself. Um, he has it, you know, the store, the physical store that he had was there until I think late 2015, 2016. So it's 40 plus years. Hmm. Uh, and then, like around then, like a like a local road widening project forces him to to vacate the store. And he didn't own the property; he rented it. So, you know, if he owned it, they would have had to buy him out. But he, sadly, he he rented, so he had to give up the give up the store. And he's 86 years old at this point, and he loses the store. You know, and they give him 90 days to vacate vacate the premises. Um, so Len Len Rossi, being Len Rossi, you know, doesn't pack it in and retire. Of course not. He moves everything into his garage, and him and his wife ran out of the garage uh, for a few more years until he finally retired. Uh, you know, and he he always talked about wrestling fondly when remembering that part of his life. But he would always stress that helping people get healthy was what he found the most rewarding. And he guy really loved, really really loved what he was doing. Uh, his life was really really a great inspirational story. Uh, you know, wrestling career cut short. A guy with no higher education, no trade skill. What what is a forty something year old guy going to do? And a lot of guys in the situation like we talked about Ellering earlier. A lot of guys in that situation just kind of get lost uh, post wrestling career. Uh, but he was, you know, able to turn things around and have, you know, just great, uh, great, great, great success. Yeah, uh, and great success notes. and a long life. Uh, he passed. Yeah. He, yeah. he lived till ninety one. Two quick notes before we wrap up the, the Rossi segment. There's a great interview with Len Rossi, uh, episode 55 of the 605 uh, interview with Brian and interviewing Len Rossi. It's fantastic. So you want to hear more from Len from himself, uh, check that out. Second, not only was Len a pioneer in the terms of healthy living, he was also one of the earliest wrestlers to get into the record business. Uh, I know that he released at least two 45s uh, that I'm aware of. One, A Wrestler's Prayer which is a cover of like a sad country tune that he updated and reworked and have a wrestling theme to it. And also did a single with Jackie Fargo. Jackie Fargo did a ton of records. Uh, he does a cover of, of Cotton Fields, the old Lead Belly tune, a little rousing duet. Uh, and check those out if you can. You find them on YouTube or eBay or Discogs, wherever you find your old wrestling stuff. And no, despite the public demand, I'm not going to sing either of those songs. No, uh, you, no, you can't steal my thunder. I'm the only one that can sing <laughs> uh, on this episode. But perhaps if you take some lessons from uh, www.matthewkaminski.com on the accordion, oh. you oh. can uh, do some Weird Al-style uh, parodies yeah. of stuff. Weird John but, Boucher, yeah. Yeah, Len Ross. You, and you mentioned he had a couple of very brief in-ring comebacks, mostly teaming with his son, Joey. And, and one of those happens in uh, Mississippi, in the Culkins Territory. 
which oh. we talked about earlier. So like you were mentioning, everything, and, that, and that's the great thing about wrestling history, is you can always find these amazing links from something that you're talking about in the 60s, and then you look at a completely different territory 15 years later, and you see some of the same names and, and faces. So uh, the it, it's really great to dig in and to learn everything you can about Len Rossi and some of the other wrestlers we talked about. Um, one of the other interesting things that happens in the second quarter of 1962 uh, is something we talked about last month, John, where I brought up how uh, title history sites and books really uh, seem to be obsessed with keeping track of, of titles being held up. And my take is... A lot of the times when that happens, it's a town-specific angle just to build to a rematch. And we see a great example of this in 1962 as the World Junior Heavyweight Champion Danny Hodge enters into a feud with Joe McCarthy. And no, not that Joe McCarthy, but a wrestler named Joe McCarthy. Uh, What they do, the first match in the series uh, goes to a time limit draw. So the second bout has an extended two-hour time limit. And the challenger, McCarthy, wins this one generally when Hodge throws him over the top rope. And in virtually all of these cases, and this match is happening around around the horn, um, it ends up with McCarthy claiming he should be the champ since he won the match. But of course, as we know, titles can't change on a DQ. But the paper always refers to these the, to the title as being held up pending a rematch. And of course, the rematch, uh, Hodge wins. Sometimes there's a stipulation with two referees or uh, waiving the disqualification rule. Um, but when the title is held up in each town, it's not acknowledged in the other ones. And in fact, there are times when the sequence plays out in one town and the title's held up and Hodge regains it before the second match in the series in another town where the title gets held up. So if you're truly trying to track title histories, every time the title gets held up in this feud, which is in like six or seven towns, you should count it. And, and, and I, you know, the nightmare of keeping track of these title histories uh, is just so hard to do because, and I think I've mentioned this, but the way the promoters ran their storylines and, and, and had local promos and inserts on their TV, the way I try to explain it is um, there's an overall arching storyline, but from town to town, you can get a slightly different version of that based on not only the bicycle and the time delay, but also sometimes uh, in some towns, some wrestlers uh, are on the house shows more often than others. And because of these local promos, you you come off with the impression that those guys are more important. Um, so it, it's really hard. You know, I, I, trying to do a linear tracking of the title histories is is an impossible task. And I, I respect everyone that tries it, but things like this make me realize that you just can't do it. Yeah, it's one of the... Uh... It's one of the hardest things to deal with in trying to track histories. It, uh, and the first time I remember reading about this sort of trickery uh, was with my man Bob Backlund in 1981. Uh, there, uh, Backlund was wrestling Greg Valentine at, at the Garden. Uh, always loved the matches these two guys would have. Uh, but anyway, after like 15 or 20 minutes, Valentine's got uh, Backlund in the airplane spin, spinning back and around and around and around. And Backlund catches the ref, John Stanley. Uh, I think the ref was his boot or his leg as Valentine's airplane spinning him around. The ref gets knocked out. Uh, Valentine falls over. Backlund falls on top of him. Ref's out. Ref comes to. Counts three. 
uh, back when there's still dazed, Valentine is the first guy to his feet. Now, both Valentine and Backlund are wearing black tights. Uh, and the ref raises Valentine's hand. He's confused uh, because he thinks Valentine is the guy who got the pin. Uh, and almost immediately, the ring is full of like four of the referees, the New York State Athletic Commission officials, <laughs> Backlund, Arnold Skolin, and Howard Finkel. It's like total chaos in the ring. Everyone's talking, gesturing wildly, Backlund's pacing back and forth like a madman. And then finally, uh, Finkel announces that because of the unusual circumstances surrounding the end of this match, the title is going to be held up and there'll be a rematch for the vacant title next month at Madison Square Garden, which, of course, drew like 20, 21, 22,000 people. Um, and this was an angle uh, slash quote unquote title change that, you know, like the, the Hodge McCarthy angles was unique to this town. Uh, like this was only acknowledged in New York City, yeah, in Madison Square Garden. Um, Backlund continued to find, you know, to defend the title, you know, in like Groton, Connecticut, and wherever else the next for the next month. Um, it was acknowledged in the after magazines, but by the time that stuff goes to press, it was, you know, three months later and all but forgotten. Uh, so, but like I said, trying to track wrestling histories in a historically accurate manner is extremely difficult. I'm, I'm sure you're aware. And it's like a, a thing, like if, even if you need, you need a hundred percent of your house show results and there's no way to do it hundred percent accurately. And even if you have a hundred percent of your results, you had better like using asterisks because there's so many. <laughs> right. Like, think like I say, you can't use the same data points that you use for real yeah. sports, such as championship reigns in boxing or MMA or win-loss records in other sports, because that's just not how wrestling works. And, and, and that's really why I came up with the concept, uh, the concepts behind charting the territories and these two statistics is because they measure something that is of value and that quote unquote works for yeah. wrestling, whereas these other things don't. And the tag and the, 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 the title problem, it, it applies from everything from the smallest of the regional tag team titles to world championships. So it's like across the board. It's a, it's a huge, huge problem when, when, but that's why one of, one of the reasons, like I said, one of the reasons your system is so wonderful. Yeah. So that's the Hodge and McCarthy feud, which is a pretty big feud for Hodge. And Matsuda uh, will eventually become a, a, Big time foe of Hodge. I, I think they have their first match or matches around this time, but they're they're not in a program just quite yet. And that's 1962. And you can look at more about the second quarter of 1962 on the blog at chartingtheterritories.com. Uh, we're going to jump into the mailbag and we only have time to answer one piece of mail, uh, but that works out really well because we only got one piece of mail. So, hey. Uh, works out. You know, <laughs> hey, it is what it is. But as always, if you have any questions about the things we talk about in the podcast, uh, you can reach me at Al Gets Wrestling on Twitter or John at John Boucher. That's J O N underscore B O U C H E R. And we love getting questions and we love answering them on the air. Uh, so we've got a question from JLR Pro. 
And his question is, what have been some of the biggest jumps in feud or spot rating that maybe has surprised you? You talked about the natural curve of a career or when someone leaves a territory and enters a more high profile one. But how about a wrestler who went from the main event in one territory to the prelims of another or a feud that just had a cold stop instead of just naturally winding down? Um, So when it comes to jumps in spot, you don't see jumps Necessarily, you're not going to see someone in the prelims of a, of one territory for a month, and then all of a sudden the next week in the main event. If they are moved up the cards, it's a steady, slow process. Um, I think of Dennis Stamp in 1972 and 1973. He's there uh, in 72, and he's just a mid-carder. doesn't really seem like he's... Uh, going to be pushed. But as we get into 73, he ends up becoming a main eventer. And some of that is due to attrition. I think Dr. X gets injured and he's he's like the top baby face and he uh, gets injured. So everyone below him sort of moves up a notch. Um, but it, it was a steady process. It wasn't uh, overnight. It, uh, and even if we think of, you know, Horowitz wins or, you know, Sean Waltman pinning, you know, Razor Ramon on Raw, even after that, they still were slowly, you know, built up. It wasn't, uh, they were instantly in main events. Uh, in 1980, Terry Orndorff, I was surprised to see him as a main eventer. It wasn't a very long run as a main eventer, and it was as JYD's partner, and it was to injure him so that Paul's return could mean something big. So there's always a reason behind it. I also think of Ed Wiskowski's uh, push in Florida in 80 or 81 as Mongoose Derek Draper as something that seemed out of whack. But one of the more interesting career arcs is uh, Magnum TA. Uh, And I think I talked about this on Cornette's podcast several months ago, but he starts out in, I think he's in Vancouver and or Portland. A lot of the guys worked both, but he's a prelim wrestler. No push whatsoever. Uh, He's a rookie, so he's learning. He then goes to Southwest and it's the same thing. He's just working in the prelims. Then he goes to Florida and he's there for a year and a half, which first off is very unusual for a non-pushed wrestler. Um, although if I'm young and look like Terry Allen probably did in, you know, 1981, 1982, I wouldn't want to leave Florida. I don't care how little they were paying me. (laughs) I mean, he probably did very well there if he was single, shall we say. If not financially Um, and other, other ways. Yeah. Uh, but he really is mostly a prelim. He gets a little bit of a push in the, the latter half of that run. He teams up with Brad Armstrong, but I actually did, I did look at his spot rating in Florida and, and. He barely scratches the surface of of the mid cards. And then he goes to Mid-South and boom, he's rocketed up the cards uh, over the course of, you know, several weeks. And and that's the thing. Um, And this was something I learned from reading Rocky Johnson's book, which uh, was released and then very quickly unreleased. Um, But Rocky said when a newcomer, you know, unless they've been established as a main eventer somewhere, when a newcomer comes in, they always start in the prelims and the first week they usually win. Um, because this way the promoter and booker can see how the crowd reacts to them, how their work is, how they sort of fit in with the other wrestlers in the territory, both aesthetically and, you know, if they actually get along with them in the dressing room. Um, and if everything looks good, they will move them up and maybe they'll debut them on TV with a win and give them some promo time. But again, it's still a gradual process. And if it doesn't take off that push that we say they strapped the rocket to Magnum. If he hadn't gotten over, they wouldn't have. It would They would have stalled him out in the mid-cards. Hmm. 
and just kept him there for a few months. So you don't know when someone first comes in just because they get a couple wins on TV. That doesn't mean they're destined for main event stardom. The 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 booking in this day was very adaptable and malleable. Um, and the same thing goes with feuds. There, there's there's no definition of what is a feud in wrestling. I use the feud score to measure something that if uh, a matchup has a high feud score, it probably was a feud. But there are many times where an angles run on TV and they just do one match on the house shows and, and move on to something else. It doesn't mean it was a failure as a feud. The way I describe it, John, it's a very structured and organized method of throwing shit at the wall to see what sticks. Because it's really true. They have all these various puzzle pieces and they take this baby face and this heel and they put them in an angle on TV and they you know book it on house shows that week. And depending on how it draws or depending on how the match looks, that determines if they, they stick with it or not. And a lot of times, uh, you know, I know as we get into the 80s, a lot of the big feuds have angles every week on TV filmed at the TV tapings. But before that, a lot of times they just do one TV angle. And then everything else is based on what happens at the house shows. And they use the local house show promo part of the TV show to advance the storyline. Uh, for example, in 72, when Dale Lewis turns on Bill Watts, obviously there's a built in story there. And you would think it would probably draw really well, but there's some evidence that it only drew well in certain towns. And also the other thing to understand is Watts isn't working six, seven nights a week, like the rest of the crew. He's probably working more like four or five nights. Um, so they do the angle on TV where Lewis and Watts are teaming and Lewis turns heel on him. And then from there, it's up to each town to advance their story. And, and, and sometimes it's a one and done. Sometimes it's a two and done. Sometimes it's more involved than that. Uh, and each each town has their own sort of narrative. Uh, as far as a wrestler, the other thing he asked, a wrestler who went from the main event in one territory to the prelims of another... First off, who, you know, no one would really want to do that. Um, you know, even if it's, even if they can make more money, there's, there's ego involved with a lot of these wrestlers. So, um, unless it's someone like, um, well, let's take Len Rossi, I think is I, you know, I, I, like I said, he had a couple of cents outside the outside of the Goulas territory, and they were just, they were probably done just to sell an injury angle in his home territory. So, if he's only in McGurk's land for six weeks, they're not going to push him really hard. And he ends up, you know, really not getting past mid-card level. Um, so, But he's just there probably to make more money when he goes back to Goulas off of a hot injury angle. Yeah. Um, but one example, I, I actually have two that I could mention. Uh, first is Buddy Landell. Um, Buddy Landell was poised for a huge push in uh, Crockett and ended up no showing the TV taping where they were going to kickstart this major angle between him and Flair and gets fired. He goes to Memphis, uh, has a nice little main event run there, uh, first teaming with and then feuding with Dundee. And then he goes back to Crockett and he is, I don't know... If he was punished is the right term or if they were just testing him, but he is slotted much lower on the cards this time around than where he had been before he was fired. Um, we can understand why they did it. And from Buddy's point of view, if he's trying to earn back their trust, we can understand why he wants to do it. But th those are few and far between. It's, it's not like someone's going to have a huge run against Bruno in Madison Square Garden and say, OK, now I'll come to Dallas and work prelims. Um, once you're established as a main eventer, 
you're looking to be used as a main eventer. And if, uh, you know, the territory you're looking at only offers you a lower spot, you will probably hold out um, and see if a better offer comes from from somewhere else. Um, but the other example is Pepper Gomez, uh, who in the mid 70s oh. goes to Florida and I think mid seventies Pepper Gomez is is a lot different from the Pepper Gomez we we know and love from from California, yeah. but I've also heard there were some issues he didn't quite click uh, either with Eddie or with the crew or whatever, and he's sort of banished to a lower spot on the cards than you would think his mm-hmm. his talent and and you know experience warrants, and he's also sent to more of the B towns, which as we said earlier usually results in smaller paydays. So it's one of those things where he just didn't quite click uh, and didn't work out in the spot they had thought he was going to be in. So again, he's a pushed entity. He's getting wins on TV um, and, you know, and he's working regularly, but he just, they just build him up to a certain level. Um, And then as far as feuds, having a cold stop, um, as I mentioned, that you don't really you won't know it's a cold stop uh, because when the babyface wins, you just the babyface wins. Um, the only the only times it could happen is if someone legitimately gets injured or quits the territory in the dead of night. Um, and I think there's an example of that in Florida in '77. Uh, Lad turns heel on Dusty. Ernie Lad t- turns heel on Dusty, and he quits in the midst of what seems to have been a longer planned program. Hmm. Um, and and he no shows some shows, uh, but realistically, the the way these territories worked, you, you didn't know that a feud was ending quickly. And especially since in those days, you're not thinking like that. You're thinking you want the baby face to win. So if they win and the first match or the third match, you're so happy. You don't really think about, Oh, that feud must not have drawn. Well, you're just, Oh, my hero was better, you know, was better than I thought because he whipped that guy the first time out. You're not thinking that was that the blow off match. Yeah. Yeah, It's just a a completely different way of thinking. That's a great question. Uh, And as, as we get into charting the territories, charting this territory for the complete run, um, you know, we're, we're sort of showing it in bits and pieces and three month chunks, but eventually we'll have them all. And uh, not to give anything away, but the this blog and podcast is called Charting the Territories. So in all likelihood, there will be other territories to be charted. And as, as we fill in all these gaps and see all this history, we will probably see some very interesting numbers and some guys that we didn't realize were main eventers having main event runs and feuds that we didn't think would last long did. I, I will say in 1980, I was amazed that the Paul Orndorff, Ken Mantell feud went as long as it did, especially since uh, the whole, you know, the, the midway point of the feud was Ken getting his head shaved. And you would yeah. think that's, that's normally a blow off to a feud, but yeah. apparently it's, it drew well. And, to some aspect, it might have been because DiBiase versus Killer Khan wasn't clicking as much, mm. but they decided to keep going with Orndorff and Mantel and, and uh, eventually brought in their brothers uh, and made it a family feud, uh, but yeah. without Richard Dawson. Unfortunately. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so so that's uh, our look at the McGurk territory. Uh, well, at Mid South in 1980, at McGurk 
1962. Uh, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, we're also looking at the Mississippi Territory at payhip.com slash charting the territories. Uh, the blog is charting the territories.com. And if you haven't heard enough of my wonderful speaking voice, you can hear me on the most recent edition of Between the Sheets, episode number 272, where we talk about a 12-day period in October of 1987. And I teach everybody about the Nanowea Mound in Louisville, Mississippi, uh, which mm-hmm. is uh, actually a pretty significant uh, piece of land. It's on the National Register of Historic Places, and it is the spiritual home of the Choctaw. Uh, oh. John, have you have you been making any podcast appearances, or do you have anything else you would like to plug? I have nothing to plug this this week. No, I have to. I have to. Uh, you know, I'm. Just, Come on, I, you got to get out there. We we need got, you to go on more podcasts and got, pimp this podcast. I, I got nothing to. I got nothing to plug this. Maybe next month. Maybe. All next. right, but they can find you on Twitter. Where? Oh, absolutely. Uh, at J O N underscore Boucher B O U C H E R at John Boucher. That's right. J O N underscore B O U C H E R. All right. Well, next month on the podcast, and don't forget, my singing debut is still to come. Oh, yeah. But next month on the podcast, we're going to look at the fourth quarter of 1976. Uh, two different heel tag teams split up at the same time. Uh, we finally have a new world junior heavyweight champion, and then we get two additional title switches within four days of one another. Uh, Skandor Akbar finds a new friend and a whole lot more. That will be next month on Charting the Territories podcast. To be the first to know when new episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingthepodcast.com. Charting the Territories is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And now the moment we have all been waiting for. The theme song to the American Males, the WCW tag team, uh, in the 90s, Marcus Alexander Bagwell and Scotty Riggs. And as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, I'm not doing this alone. Matthew Kaminsky, the organist for the Atlanta Braves, was kind enough to provide the musical accompaniment for the American Males theme song. And uh, if you appreciate him and what he does, you can go to MatthewKaminsky.com to purchase CDs. And I promise you, his CDs do not feature me singing. It is just his his music. And you can also take some online lessons uh, and learn to play the piano organ or accordion but without further ado here is uh yours truly i'll get singing the theme song to the american males there's a long intro it's like a metallica song with this long brooding instrumental intro and i'm not going to sing the where they repeat american males over and over again i'm not going to do that all right we're getting there we're getting there He's really good. MatthewKaminsky.com for all your music and organ needs. When you see them coming, better run for cover. Girls, you're gonna need a weekend lover. Uh, American males. If they want to talk to you, you better not listen. You might wind up in critical condition. <laughs> American males.
da ba ba da do wop. A suda dee da dee I yap at the doctor. Wop ji da hee ha 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 American males. I made that part up. They're irresistible. They're unpredictable. American males. 